Luke chapter 6, we'll be picking up in verse 12. A few weeks ago, we finished up the four controversies that the Lord Jesus Christ had dealt with with the Pharisees. We heard the first controversy that as the paralytic was lowered from the roof, that the Lord Jesus Christ would tell him that your sins are forgiven you. And that would be more controversial than even the paralytic man being healed and walking. It really rubbed the feathers of the Pharisees the wrong way. Then we saw that in the very next passage, another controversy arise. This time, Jesus chooses to eat with a basket of deplorables. He eats with tax collectors and the worst of them. And the consternation of the Pharisees continues as they watch from a distance as Jesus is the honored guest of a party of undesirable people. And then a few weeks ago, we dealt with the last two controversies together, both dealing with the Christian Sabbath as it relates to the disciples harvesting grain on the Sabbath, a work perhaps of necessity, and then also healing a withered hand on the Sabbath, perhaps a work of mercy. Both violations of the Mishnah, as we heard a few weeks ago, and thus sealing the fate of Jesus to these religious leaders. This man would not be the Messiah in their mind. And even worse, he is a detriment to all that we are. Therefore, we must, as we'll see later in Luke, do away with him. But today is a little happier in many regards, but perhaps not as happy as you'd expect. It is the calling of the twelve disciples. After these four controversies on the heels of them, we see that Jesus Christ himself now calls twelve of his many disciples to be apostles. You see, Jesus doesn't just have a few disciples following him. He has many. And today we see that calling, and that calling being joined together with both declaration as Jesus heals, but also the Beatitudes as Jesus teaches them true blessing. As it relates to that, stand in reverence and awe as we hear from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. Verse 12, hear the word of God. In these days... He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and they, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did 
to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I rarely win anything. I I rarely win anything. Rarely is my name selected, called, or chosen. I can't win a raffle to save my life. I, I can't win a raffle to save my life. I sign up for every book giveaway that's possible, and I try to accrue the most amount of entries, thinking one of these times I will actually win. I have not yet won any of them. You wouldn't want to choose me for your pickup basketball team, obviously. If you look at me, you can just tell. I'm even a worse shot than my height would perhaps communicate to you. You don't want me on your trivia team either. You might think, okay, Scott's an educated man. He went to seminary. He has a couple degrees. No, you do not want me on your trivia team. I freeze in the moment. You can ask me, what is the chief end of man? And I will say, I've never heard of it. (laughs) I am never chosen. (laughs) You don't want me on any of these teams. If you have a nerdy work in the domain of polity, that one sphere that maybe I excel in, then I can be your guy, but never anywhere else. The only time that I seem to be chosen for anything is when my car extended warranty expires and a a prince from Africa seems to have millions with my name on it. I'm still waiting for those millions. But today we see that Jesus selects. Jesus selects, calls, and chooses who his closest confidants would be. Uh, From a pool of disciples, from the twelve, he would choose only twelve of the perhaps hundreds that were there with them. He would see that these twelve would be the men that would walk alongside him throughout all of his ministry. It was an honored place to be, one of these twelve. These twelve apostles, it would have been an honored place to have your name solidified in the pages here that we read be Peter, John, Bartholomew. It'd be a great honor and privilege to be these 12. And though these 12 would be certainly rejoicing in the selection of their calling, what we'll see in this passage is that though it is a great honor and privilege to be an apostle and even a disciple, that it is not always easy. They're not always comforts or successes. And though we are called to serve Christ, and it will be of a great honor and privilege to do so, as perhaps one prosperity gospel preacher teaches, you probably won't, contra to him, live your best life now. Life will be difficult. And life for a disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ might be more difficult than without. And that's what we see here today. We might have some also in our congregation who are confused of their calling. When I was in college and high school, I often wondered and navel-gazed over what the Lord would have in store for my life. I wanted to know the will of the Lord. I analyzed everything. Oh, Lord, what is your will for my life? And perhaps our high schoolers are thinking that now. Oh, Lord, what will I do? Should I go to college? Should I take up a trade? 
What does the Lord have for me? What is the will of the Lord? What is the Lord calling me to? But we even, all of us, could empathize. We might question our own calling in the Lord. I don't know how many times you felt the most fulfilled in washing your own dishes, cutting the lawn, doing your taxes, those pesky doctor's visits as the more you age, they seem to be more and more frequent. You may drive to those visits and wonder to yourself, is this really the calling of the Lord? I have perhaps terrible news. Yes, maybe it is. But what we're going to see in a spiritual sense is what does the Lord call us to as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? And so the main idea is simple. Rejoice in your calling. And we're going to evaluate that calling throughout the text here. Rejoice in your calling. The first thing you need to learn in rejoicing for your calling is who calls you? Who calls you? You are called by Christ. That's what we see in verse 11 or 12 to 16. We see it most stringently in verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. We see that in the first verse here that Jesus spends heart-staking time choosing who would be his disciples. He doesn't just randomly choose any mini miny mo, but he actually spends grave time. He has a sleepless night as he prays, who of, the tw- of these hundreds should be called my twelve? Spends all night communing with God in prayer and the dialogue. It's interesting. You perhaps think that this would be an easy choice for the Son of Man. As he is both fully God and fully man. But his humanity needs to know. Who are these twelve that it is the will of the Father for me to choose? You think it would be an easy conversation. Why does it have to take all night? You might wonder. Oh Lord, I've sent up my request. Just give me the twelve and I can go to sleep, have a good night rest and I can choose them tomorrow morning. I can let them know the events. Instead, it seems more like a Catholic ritual where you would wait for days, maybe weeks, as you learn of a new pope or something. It takes a long time. Jesus prays all night, continues in prayer and hopes to learn these 12. It's a painstaking work. I don't know the last time that you've had a sleepless night. Usually my sleepless nights are joined together with a bad event in my life. They're never a joyous event. If I am caught awake at night, there is a reason, and it is typically not very good. If I had a positive thing to ask of the Lord, I'd likely fall asleep. And that's what we see the disciples do later in the book. When Jesus goes, as he is preparing for death, his disciples are constantly falling asleep. They don't get the hubbub. But Jesus here particularly chooses some. And he doesn't do so flippantly. He does so directly. But note also he doesn't choose the cream of the crop. You might think with hundreds of men gathering and flocking as this passage seems to communicate that the multitude of disciples, these are the best 12 that the Lord has to offer, some unintelligent fishermen, tax collectors that swindle, a man that, as Luke spoils it for you, will be a betrayer? Are these the best, the 12? These are the best 12? And the answer is no. There are likely better men in that crowd. But the Lord often uses the nobodies 
as he does here, as he selects these 12 for his team. You'd think that he would use the best that money could buy to get the best 12 of the bunch, but instead he chooses perhaps the most normal. And what does he call those most normal? We see that in verse 13. Now the day he called the disciples, he chose them from 12, and what did he name them? Apostles. We can get hung up on that term perhaps a little too much. Uh, we can get hung up on what does it mean to be an apostle. Is a question I often ask myself, uh, especially in younger years. But an apostle is just one cent. Apostello is the Greek word that is used here. It is one to be sent for our call. It is one who is commissioned to bring a message, to perform a specific duty upon someone else's behalf. These 12 were selected that they would go on, not only throughout the ministry of Christ, but beyond his life in order to bring his message to the ends of the earth. They were called apostles. I don't want you to overthink the, the apostolic nature of these apostles. Uh, you can sometimes think that the apostolicness of these apostles means that we might still have some today. You think of perhaps the Roman Catholic Church where there's an apostolic secession where from Peter, Leo, and on and on and on, the apostolic tradition continues as these priests, bishops, and even Pope continue under the banter of apostle. No. In our BCO that I just read that you've never read, it communicates that not the apostle is an ordinary office, but elder and deacon are both ordinary and continual, not apostle. It's because the work of the apostle was singular. It was to usher in the new church age and era, to continue the work of the Lord Jesus Christ after he was gone. In John 15, we see this when he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you for your work. The apostles were selected to establish the continued work of Christ on this earth. It was a unique title, but not a title that would continue. So if you ever attend a church where there is Apostle Scott or something of that nature, I'd encourage you, before you get bitten by the snake, to turn around and to leave. Because it was a temporary office for a particular time. It was these 12 plus 2 minus 1 that were given this title. These 12 minus Judas, Paul, and Matthias later. Very unique. Selected by Jesus Christ himself in order to bring about the church as we know it today. In all likelihood, these were not the most educated, well-rounded men. Sometimes when I think of my own denomination... I think, well, what can save our denomination is having the most educated, best men. And I'm not saying the PCA is in any mortal death spiral, but what can maintain the PCA is the most educated, committed men to the church. But no, what we learn here is it's the Lord. We see that the Lord is the one who chooses. Oswald Chambers says, God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and its resources or the abandonment of reliance upon them at all. That all through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because of their unusual dependence upon him to make what is impossible possible. 
And so you may be standing here today while we're doing this passage on the 12 apostles. And there would be no apostle among us. But we are reminded here that the Lord chooses a bunch of nobodies. He chooses a bunch of nobodies in order to continue the advancement of his kingdom on this earth. He doesn't choose the cream of the crop. He doesn't choose the, the best educated, the most successful businessmen. He doesn't choose the most theologically bright. He chooses a bunch of nobodies. You, in other words, you don't need a seminary education in order to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need, you, all you need to be is a fisherman who doesn't even know how to perhaps even read. What you need is to be transformed and taken in by Christ and in that transformation see your utter dependence upon Him. What sets the apostles apart is that they needed Christ. They needed Christ and so do you. So you have to know who calls you. Why should you rejoice in the calling? It's because you're called by Christ. The second thing I want you to know is that in verse 7 through 17 through 19 is that you're united in Christ. So yes, you are called by Christ, but you're also united in Christ. And we get perhaps something you would overlook in this passage if you didn't put on your thinking cap. In verse 17, it says, And he came down to them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sun coast of Tyre and Sidon. You see, this is actually a pretty eclectic group of people that gather together in order to hear the ministry of Christ. After Jesus chooses the twelve, they then go down to begin ministry as the twelve. And that includes all we have heard previously in the gospel up until this point. Jesus touches and heals. He casts out demons. He brings about the message that he has been proclaiming since his birth. And in that, we see an eclectic group of people gathered. We see that there's a great crowd of disciples, a great multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem, but also these interesting people from Tyre and Sidon. You might overlook that. But this is an odd group of people to be together under one house, as odd as perhaps if we had Israelis and Palestinians in one home. This is about as odd as this group is here. They were mortal enemies I was reading Josephus, and Josephus said of Tyre and Sidon that they were our bitterest enemies of the time. These weren't people that got along. And yet, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one that binds. He brings together an eclectic group of diverse people. You might look at our own congregation and wonder, well, we seem all pretty homogenous and ethnically Certainly we are. There are a lot of white people here. Uh, but we are diverse. We are more diverse than you perhaps would see. In Yazoo City, we had such an oddly white, diverse congregation. We had governors in our congregation. They give really good gifts. We had, we had managers. We had campaign fundraisers. We had federal judges. Yeah, that all seemed to make sense, right? But we also had teachers, farmers, insurance agents, deer processors, and barbers. It was an eclectic bunch of people, some of great magnitudes of wealth, and some not so much. In the same congregation as we look here today, 
You know, we may have home renovators, engineers, teachers, servicemen, linemen. We might even have a few honorably trained vocalists, perhaps unique to our congregation. We are an eclectic group of people. And what unites us together is not our natural love for one another, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I don't know if I would know any of you. I, I can be confident, more confident that, that I would not know any of you if we did not have this church here. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ draws the oddest people together. If I did not have the church, I would probably be in a trailer park somewhere with my own kin and kind. I would not know any of you, and you would not know me. You'd see me at Walmart and just pass by. But we have a special relationship as pastor to congregation, but as congregation with one another because the Lord Jesus Christ binds us together. Where both dear processor and known governor reside, the Lord Jesus Christ binds together. And this same Christ that binds together, as we see in this passage, also empowers us. You see that the crowds, they're almost, they're, they're groveling before Jesus Christ, wanting them to heal them. They just want to touch him. And that we see in this passage that those who the Lord draws together, they are drawn together. Not only are they united by Christ, they are empowered by him. Verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him, and he healed them all. The power of the apostolic tradition and the apostles and the disciples today is not bound with us. We mentioned that briefly as Allie came forward and she professed faith in Christ. Nothing that I do is in my own name or by my own power and authority. Nothing that any elder here says is by their own name or power and authority, which gives a great onus and burden upon your leaders. To make sure that whatever we say, whether it be individually or collectively, that we represent Christ in what we say and do. Are we perfect? Oh, no. You know it. I don't have to tell you about my laundry list of sins. Some pastors do that from the pulpit. You know it. You know that I am no perfect man and none of your elders are perfect men either. And that is a grace, then, that the Lord would be our power because it is not by our power but His. It is the same is true for you as we reminded of the work of sanctification. It is not by your power that you become a better believer. It is not by your power that you become more like Christ. It is Christ's power in you. The Presbyterian phrase is that He, in, he has vested his authority upon you. It is not your authority, it's his. And it is a good reminder for all of us here today. It's a good reminder to be reminded that it is not by your power and authority that you become a believer or that even you maintain the faith perfectly well, but it is from another. I, as I've often shared with you, overanalyze probably just about everything. That's probably my besetting sin more than any. And I often, when I am talking to someone about the faith or sharing the faith with them, as I walk away, I immediately thought of all the errors that I made in that conversation. And I often wonder if I had just moved the dialogue just around, just perfectly enough, and someone would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is superfluous and unnecessary. 
often as a pastor, I, I am discontented with a sermon, or I love a sermon. And often the Lord inverts those before my eyes. Sometimes I think I've produced the most perfect sermon that no one seems to care about. And I think, man, that was such a good one and no one seems to care. And then on other occasions I think, well, that was just a mess of a sermon. And it's in those sermons for some reason the Lord decides to remind me that he works even in the midst of my lowliness. The Lord unites us and he empowers us. The last thing I want you to see in this passage, and this is perhaps the meat of the passage, it's in the Beatitudes, is that as you rejoice in your calling, you're also called to rejoice in your suffering with Christ. You are a sufferer with Christ. That's what these Beatitudes teach us. The tables turn. As one of my favorite uh, uh, TV shows has once said, well, 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 how the turn tables. And that is what happens here. Jesus flips it on its head. What does he say? Look at verse 20 with me. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you when you are hated and when you are excluded and when you are reviled and you are spurned as evil on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you who weep. I don't know about you, but none of these things seem to be blessings to me. When I read these, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the weeping, blessed are those who are hated. How on earth are those blessings? Who says in their right mind, Oh Lord, thank you for giving me poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution. When's the last time you prayed for those four blessings? I'm guessing you've never prayed for those four blessings. What does the Lord mean by blessed? You might wonder. It's a familiar Greek ascription, which usually is ascribed to being those who have access to the most worldly things of happiness. You think of our own society. Well, a, blessed, a naturally blessed person, apart from Christianity, would be someone who has the perfect job, the perfect spouse, uh, the perfect life. They have all the money that they could ever want. Their kids go to whatever school they desire to go to. They are loved in their community by everyone. That is typically how the word blessed, blessed, is used. And here Jesus is saying, no, those superficial means are not what make you blessed. What makes you blessed are those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. It is just so perhaps odd that these sorts of people would be considered blessed. These things in and of themselves don't make you blessed, so you shouldn't go on the streets of St. Louis and tell a homeless man that he is blessed in his poverty. That's not the point. The point is that those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled are vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, they come wholly dependent upon Jesus Christ. That is why they are blessed. They are blessed because they are being grafted in to the Savior that is poor, the Savior that is hungry, the Savior that is weeping, the Savior that is hated. They are blessed because they are participating in the same work that the Lord Jesus Christ himself participates in. 
Jesus was not rich. As we saw a few weeks ago, he was hungry enough, and his disciples were hungry enough that they had to pluck grain on the Sabbath as they were traveling. There were many tears. Your favorite verse memorized is Jesus wept because it's so short. And they were certainly hated, reviled, outcasts. The blessed life here is not a life that is filled with earthly satisfaction. That's what's being taught. The blessed life here is one that is wholly dependent upon the Lord. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said this, suffering then is a badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckons suffering among one of the marks of the true church and one of the memorandum drawn up in the Augsburg Confession, similar to find it, those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake are blessed. Discipleship, as Bonhoeffer would go on to say, means allegiance to the suffering of Christ. And it is therefore not that all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. But even more than that, as Bonhoeffer would say, it is a joy and token of his grace. When have you ever thought of suffering that way? When I suffer, I often think, oh Lord, why would you do this to me? Why would you put me through this circumstance? And here we see, perhaps Bonhoeffer, as Christ has done in this passage, turn the tables. What we would ordinarily see as curse is blessing. And that's where we get the woes at the end of this passage. Woe to the rich, woe to the fool, woe to the laughing, woe to those who are loved. You see, these are juxtaposed and, and contrary, the opposite of what we just read. While the world would see these as blessings, and while you would see these as blessings naturally as common men and women in the world, these are stumbling blocks. The word woe here is used to mean, alas, how terrible. If we were in the South, you'd perhaps attach it to bless their heart kind of language. Bless their heart. They don't know any better. They don't know any better but to love the worldly things. The problem here that Jesus is addressing is the desire for money, food, entertainment, and popularity. Something that is certainly intertwined with all of your humanity. All of you want money. The natural work of a man is to provide for his home, and that always includes money. All of us want food. When's the last time you fasted? Probably a long time. All of us love to be entertained to ad nauseum. Our subscription prices tell us this. Our binge-watching confirms it. And all of us, whether you believe it or not, want to be popular. You want to be received. You want to belong. These four woes are a warning to say these are not where you find your happiness. They will all go bankrupt. There will be a time perhaps in your life where you don't have as much money as you once had. There will be a time in your life where, especially with current inflation, you might not be able to buy as much bacon as you once were able to or the food that you once enjoyed. There might be a time in your life where entertainment 
seems to become so dry and pointless and where you are liked by what seems no one. That's why you can't find your happiness in these things. And that is why you should rejoice in the calling because in the calling that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, these worldly woes are not what make us happy or joyful. What makes us happy and joyful are grounded in Christ himself. We have to seek our happiness and joy outside of ourselves then. We can't achieve it. We can't secure it. You might want happy children, but you can't shower them with money, food, entertainment, and popularity in order to secure their happiness. Their happiness and joy is found in Christ. And that's why this isn't your best life now, as one prosperity gospel writer would say, because you can't have that best life now. Notice what Jesus says uh, related to those four Beatitudes. What is blessed are those who are poor. Why are they blessed? Because yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are hungry now. Why? Because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are weeping, for you shall laugh. Things may be tough, but the Lord shall provide. And that is the promise for those who are called. As you're called in the Lord Jesus Christ to be his people, as you're connected with him uh, uh, vertically, you're connected with one another horizontally, you're called and united together, there will be suffering, but in that suffering, all of us can join together. We can weep with you in your downcastness. We can revel with you in your joy. But we can all be reminded that even if we are poor, we know that our kingdom is in heaven. And so rejoice in your calling. I know not one of you has a perfectly happy life. You may put on the face, perhaps today, it is impossible for you to do though. You have sadness, hurt, pain, trials. Some of you may have thought this today as you rolled out of bed, do I even go to church? I feel so withered. Well, I'm glad you're here. Because it is here that you're reminded of these blessed truths, that when you are with Christ, he shall provide all that you need. Come with your lamentations, and you will find blessing for your soul. And so you can rejoice in your calling, for even the suffering are blessed in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you have blessed us with such a calling that we can be joined together with you and one another, that as we profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as we are reunited with you, we find all satisfaction in all of life's needs. We thank you, O Lord, that you have called us to be your disciples. And we pray, O Lord, that for whosoever does not know you, that their hearts might not be hardened today, but that they would receive the gospel here in its totality. Oh, Lord, as you knock, may we answer the calling in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.